Good morning, everyone. We're going to go ahead and get started. If you could take your seats. Thank you. So it all began with leaks to the media, leaks that were followed by cries of outrage, enraged editorials, further investigative journalism, then a White House-appointed task force, congressional investigations, and the net result of it all, a robust, to put it mildly, a robust national dialogue about privacy, security, and the way that these things intersect with the activities of the U.S. Intelligence Committee. It was widely thought by folks at the time that the U.S. Intelligence Community would never be the same again, that this would be transformative. Or at least that's the way it seemed to those in the mid-1970s who were looking at the results of what had come out first in the media and then in the church and Pike investigations in the House and Senate and in presidential investigations as well. The pendulum had swung from a prior position that was characterized by trust in what the government was doing to one characterized by profound distrust and concern by what, at least some aspects of what, the government, it turned out, had been doing. Eventually, that pendulum would begin to swing back the other way, and the enthusiasm for change and reform, for imposing new constraints, would, would dim but before that happened, an, a new equilibrium was in place, a new legal architecture that was far different from what had been before was in place and would remain in place for, for decades to come. And of course, we're in a similar situation here since the summer of 2013. Same pattern, leaks, investigations, national dialogue, and a powerful sense that, that things are changing, that we're groping our way towards a new equilibrium. In this instance, it was inevitable that something like this would occur because of the underlying technological change impacting the way that the intelligence community goes about its business, the way it could go about its business, the way it does go about its business, and indeed the same changes making possible the very leaks that started this conversation. The idea of disruptive technological change causing significant impact on the policy and legal architectures that are the media through which the national security establishment goes about its business. This is a topic that's near and dear to us at the Robert S. Strauss Center for International Security and Law. It's one of the themes that characterize our research programs. And for that reason, this topic's especially fit for us. We're co-sponsoring, however, it's not just us. It's also the Clement Center for History, Strategy, and Statecraft Together, the Strauss and Clement Centers at UT combined forces last year to create something called the Intelligence Studies Project. And the idea of the Intelligence Studies Project is, well, it's manifold, but one of the purposes is to incentivize and spur academic policy-relevant research into the activities of the intelligence community in the spirit of improving things from the point of view of the greater public good, and then separately to try to infuse a better understanding of the facts of history, technology, of the relevant law, all these factors, into the ongoing public debate through which we're all currently living. This conference is a manifestation of that sort of interest. And for those who will be participating over the next day and a half, thank you very much for traveling to Austin, in many cases from a substantial distance, to be part of that conversation. We couldn't start off with a more appropriate speaker than we will do this morning with Admiral Bob Inman. 
it's impossible to capture the scope and impact of Admiral Emmons' contributions to the nation, to the city, to this university. I will say just a few things about him and then turn the floor over to him. He's a graduate of UT who went on to join the Navy and served for more than 30 years in a truly extraordinary array of capacities, retiring at the rank of Admiral. Picking just a few of the most salient for our purposes, along the way he served as the director of the NSA right during the tumultuous 1970s period that I described a moment ago, playing an instrumental role in the formation of the equilibrium that, that supplied us stability for so long. He also served as deputy director of the CIA, and since he left government service, his array of accomplishments have, if anything, magnified. Suffice to say that his service ranges from the Federal Reserve to an array of private sector roles that were instrumental in the growth of the Austin economy and what, it, what Austin has become today. Uh, my personal favorite contribution, however, is the Admiral's essential role in forming the Strauss Center itself and perpetuating it and sustaining it over time. We truly wouldn't be here today without him, and it's my uh, pleasure and honor to welcome him to the podium this morning, Admiral Inman. Thank you very much, Bobby, and it's wonderful to see uh, how your leadership of the Strauss Center has taken off and what promise it brings. Um, after Chris English's thoughtful, complex presentation last night, this is going to seem pretty amateurish. Uh, what you're really getting is a retrospective from one person's memory of events that set the backdrop for what this conference is going to focus on. And as I do to my students in the classes I teach, I always start with a little bit of history. Uh, this country would put together intelligence capabilities during a war. And as soon as the war was over, we'd get rid of them. General attitude was that if we knew too much about the outside world, we'd get involved. And that's going back to George Washington's original injunction against entangling alliances. That changed on the human side in the 80s. Creation of both naval attaches and army attaches to go find out what was going on in Europe in building of ships and uh, equipping ground forces. Purpose? U.S. budgets. There had been no new hull laid down in the Navy from the end of the Civil War. So a 32-year-old Secretary of the Navy sent naval attaches to London and St. Petersburg, hoping that that would persuade the Congress that we should spend more money. That's a theme that continues on to the present day. But it was World War I that sharpened the country's interest in communications intelligence. And it was our British colleagues who fostered that. And you'll remember from history the Zimmerman telegram. Uh, British collected, decrypted diplomatic communications between Mexico City and uh, Berlin. And they provided that to the U.S. at a critical point, which helped persuade President Wilson that we should head into the conflict on the side of the Allies after having remained neutral for almost three years. Uh, 
Um, but beyond that, it also said this was something we ought to be doing regularly, not simply relying on the British. So when World War I was over, we kept a communications intelligence capability after the war for the first time. It was called the Black Chamber. It was placed in New York City. Why would you put it in New York City, not Washington? Because that's where the undersea cables came and went. And if you wanted to access the diplomatic traffic, it's like Willie Sutton. Why did he rob banks? That's where the money was. So you positioned yourself so that you could access that which was of most interest to you. We know from history that they provided a lot of uh, detail. Uh, primarily, State Department is the customer for um, naval arms limitation talks, other trade agreement talks. Then came 1929, new Secretary of State. Briefer went running in to show Secretary Stimson the position that was going to be taken by the other uh, people in the upcoming discussions. And he said, gentlemen, don't read other gentlemen's mail, and ordered the black chamber disestablished. Now, Mr. Yardley, who'd created it and ran it through that long period of time, was so inflamed that he wrote a book. The Black Chamber, which went through all the details of our successful efforts at intercepting, decrypting, and customers who'd used it. Well, the reaction in Congress, the first and really only effective legislation focused on leaks of classified information, 18 U.S. Code 798, 1933, very simple. If you had access to communications intelligence and you provided it to someone who was not authorized, $10,000 fine and up to 10 years in jail. 1933 terms, $10,000 was a lot of money. And it created a sense of discipline about those who had access to communications intelligence that prevailed well into the... Uh, decade of the 1980s. In the Army, the War Department and the Navy Department had picked up elements of research the Black Chamber done and some of the talent, and that became the nucleus for ultimately the successful attacks on Enigma and Purple. Uh, huge contributors to success in World War II. From my own perspective, uh, there was another outcome. A great many people who had worked particularly in Enigma uh, in World War II went on to very prominent positions in the U.S. government. And at a point in time when I was under fire as the new director at NSA, a number of them reached out to offer advice help. Joe Kraft, who'd been an 18-year-old at Arlington Hall Station. Um, Justices Potter Stewart and John Paul Stevens, who had both served uh, in the field and had, but there's a, there's a sense here, a strong sense of patriotism because of their direct personal knowledge of the contribution that the success in collecting and breaking codes had had 
on the U.S. war success. And there were a great many others that it turned out as well. Uh, fast forward, 1952, uh, actually in 51, the Air Force Signals Intelligence Service had detected preparations of the Chinese to enter the Korean War. They did not share that information with the unified commander, uh, General MacArthur, nor did they share it with Washington. And when President Truman found out about that, he was so furious that he created a commission chaired by a lawyer named Brownell to examine the entire process of how the U.S. government was organized to do communications intelligence. And that led to President Truman signing in November 1952 the executive order that created what became the National Security Agency. I dwell on that for a very specific reason. From the outset, the Secretary of Defense was the executive agent for the government for operating NSA. But the Director of Central Intelligence was charged to tell NSA what they should collect. NSA would decide how to do it, but the directive on what to collect wasn't decided by NSA, it was decided by the Director of Central Intelligence. Set up a committee structure, regularly reviewed SIGINT committee. Um, it was not one of my favorite organizations in my time frame because it was really tell us everything you know about every topic. But the intent was to prioritize not only what you're to collect, but to prioritize the order in which it would be done. The only real change in that process came in 2004 with the creation of the Director of National Intelligence and the responsibility to do that shifted there. But as we get into the much further discussion on this, simply remember, NSA does not decide what to collect. They decide how to collect it, how to maintain it, how to provide access to it. Um, things rocked along pretty well until 1975. Church committee, Pike committees were formed in the wake of revelations by Seymour Hersh and ultimately others in the process. But one of the things which came out in that process was the Tom Charles Houston plan. He was a staffer at the Nixon White House. The Nixon White House was absolutely paranoid about who was funding the anti-Vietnam demonstrations. They were persuaded it was foreign money. They were persuaded it was coming into Cuba. That's ultimately what led them to Watergate, trying to find evidence of that funding stream. So what Tom Charles Houston put together was a, a plan for all the intelligence agencies to conduct surveillance of all those who were identified as taking part in the anti-war demonstrations. Tom Charles Houston plan was never implemented. It was, in fact, uh, brought down by none other than J. Edgar Hoover. Now, why did J. Edgar Hoover block it? Because he didn't want the other intelligence agencies getting involved in what he considered to be his purview of looking at what was going on inside the United States. But when the church committee dug into and gave great attention to the Tom Charles Houston plan, it was almost lost that it was never implemented. 
Nonetheless, General Island, the director of NSA, public session, beaten around the head and shoulders. His predecessor, twice removed, Noel Geiler, had in fact been involved in putting together the Tom Charles Houston plan. And the NSA could well have been brought into it had it ever been implemented in the process. So that created broadly in the country the image that NSA was spying on U.S. citizens in the process. Um, I had been deeply involved in the Church and Pike Committee uh, hearings and my role as Director of Naval Intelligence. Um, I'd been pulled out of intelligence in 1972 to be the executive assistant to the Navy's vice chief. Every day, I was tasked to monitor how had the Navy Department writ large done the previous 24 hours with the media and with Congress. So I came to know a lot about committees, the members' committees, their orientation, but staffs particularly, the role of the staff. So when the church committee and pike committees were put together and they began to fan out, naval intelligence was one of their targets. Had we supported efforts to assassinate Castro, were we involved in reconnaissance uh, activities that might get us into a nuclear conflict? I met the staffs. I read the same files they read. Uh, we discussed what we found in the files. Uh, no disagreement on fact. Disagreement sometimes on what it meant. But when it came time for hearings, I asked for closed hearings to start. Never had an open hearing. A lot of closed ones. None of my colleagues, other than Bill Coby, had ever dealt with the Congress. They didn't meet the staffs. They didn't read the files. They were surprised. They began with open hearings and were surprised by things which came up. They were ill-prepared to counter them quickly. And thus you get this large public image of uh, incompetence to uh, deliberate uh, activities that were inimical to the government's interest. So fast forward out of all of that, I end up getting promoted one start of three to be the vice director of Defense Intelligence Agency. President Ford lost the election, and then to my great amazement under President Carter, second three-star assignment to be the director of NSA. Relieved General Allen on the 5th of July, 77, one-day turnover. That day, Eugene Meyer, a longtime NSA employee, uh, frustrated that General Allen had not dealt with this creeping problem of public cryptography, private institutions, uh, Bell Labs, uh, research univers universities, looking at modern cryptology. Meyer's view was that was an exclusive NSA province. And in his view, doing the research violated the basic tenet of 18 U.S. Code 798. So he wrote a letter to the IEEE telling them that they were in violation of the law because they were doing uh, research in cryptography. Uh, so that storm greeted me on my first day. The one of spying on U.S. citizens was already in full bloom. The third one came about um, in a couple of weeks. For many years, the monopoly, AT&T, had been willing to provide access to 
diplomatic communications, only with some written assurance. So a process had gone for 30 years of presidential warrants. They'd be prepared, go down, the president would authorize, they'd be provided to uh, AT&T. FBI then usually did the actual job. You'd go into the switching center, find the dedicated line, put on the recorder. Simple process. Uh, very little likelihood that you'd run across communications of U.S. citizens unless uh, a U.S. citizen was being discussed in the foreign diplomatic traffic. Well, stack came in of warrants to uh, be reissued second week, so I dutifully signed them. Courier took them down to the NSC, and then he called me the Brzezinski's deputy, David Aaron, who had been on the church committee staff, uh, had looked at them and said, they're trying to get something they can blackmail the president with. This is like J. Edgar Hoover. So I said, bring them back, and when the current warrants have expired, stop the coverage. And we did exactly that. And it turned out that there were some customers, including the U.S. Attorney General, actively following some activity and immediately, where's the traffic? No warrant, no traffic. Uh, the answer back, oh, we didn't understand, get them down, President Carter will sign them today, and did, and we resumed the coverage. But I concluded at that point that there needed to be a very different process to do, to authorize and oversee how you went about collecting information inside the U.S., albeit it was all focused on foreigners, embassies, trade organizations, litany. Um, so I went to the Senate Select Committee to talk to Senator Warren Rudman, Republican of New Hampshire, and Senator Joe Biden, Democrat of Delaware. And out of those discussions came the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Um, there were some people on the committee who weren't in favor, one of them named Pat Leahy, who still pops up on this topic because he didn't like the idea at the outset creating the court. Turns out somewhat later, neither did Dick Cheney, whose view that was just Inman covering his backside and there was no need to do this. He'd processed all those warrants for President Ford and it was derogation of uh, the inherent powers of the presidency to inject judicial review. But I was persuaded from my experience with church committee and general public attitudes that you need, these were legitimate intelligence interests to the country and that you ought to be able to get legislation that would let you, in fact, comply with U.S. law. Uh, so the court to review and, most critically, the select committees of the Congress to look at how you used that authority over time. Um, we got it off to a pretty solid start in the process. Uh, so that solved um, one of the problems. But coming back to the other two, the issue of spying on U.S. citizens and on suppressing research in cryptography, um, I, first thing I'd done was to change the nature of legal advice for the director NSA. 
It had always been a career cryptologist, wonderful guy, Roy Bannerman, uh, who'd gone up and also got a law degree. And I decided I wanted the best outside advice I could get. So Deanne Seymour, general counsel of the Defense Department, uh, did the work, and I hired as NSA's general counsel, Dan Silver. Um, substantial unease inside NSA, bringing in this foreigner who doesn't understand the signals intelligence business. Just at that point in time, we had a case on appeal to the circuit court in Alexandria. Um, Justice Department really wasn't interested in it. Dan Silver was eager to get a chance to appeal. Um, Justice let him take the case. He won a sweeping decision in NSA's favor. And all of a sudden, I was a hero for having brought Dan Silver in. But as I turned to try to deal with this problem of public perceptions in cryptography, um, as an undergraduate at Berkeley, Dan Silver had been editor of the Daily Californian. So certifiably liberal credentials for getting into a dialogue. His father also had been on the Berkeley faculty. So we arranged to go out for a meeting uh, on the Berkeley campus. Um, Mike Heyman, who was the vice chancellor, had been previous dean of the law school, hosted. The head of the uh, faculty council was the primary opponent. And I tell you, the first hour, it was sort of the dialogue of the deaf. I would present the case. He would give an exact counter-argument that was nothing uh, that approached reconciliation until Mike Heyman said, no, wait a minute. Let's just consider maybe the admiral does have a valid case. How would we go about dealing with it if it was valid? Uh, chairman of the faculty council didn't like it, but the others sort of rallied. And out of it came a very serious discussion of peer review. They had had some interaction with NSA over the years, a few of the researchers, and it was sort of a black hole. If they approached them, they'd get no response, uh, no discussion. So we agreed that what we needed to put in place was neutral ground to sit down to say, could you, in fact, develop a peer review process that would protect NSA's long-term national security interest, but also satisfy the need to, to let this field of public cryptography uh, explode, dealing with what we perceive to be a growing uh, need in the country. I would be honest tell you, we didn't begin to perceive how large that need would become. The Jack Peltison, who was president of the American Council of Education, agreed to provide the, the neutral ground. Uh, Atkinson, who was the head of the National Science Foundation, funded it. And out of it came a process. Uh, a researcher in cryptography would submit to NSA, is there any national security grounds to oppose what we're doing? NSA was required to respond within uh, within. Uh, two months. They could not stretch it out. If they had objection, they had to be willing to clear the individual uh, to let them understand what the objection was. I then made a detour. Uh, one of the most outspoken critics 
was a professor at Stanford made up named Marty Hellman. So I drove down in my rental car and knocked on the door of Professor Hellman, and we talked through the whole process. I reported the Berkeley conference. He agreed to take part in the effort. <clears throat> he was one of the very few who ultimately pursued the point of being cleared to examine and understand why the specific problem they were pursuing uh, was a challenge. That process worked for about 15 years, and then just the explosion of digital communications and the spread sort of outstripped peer review. So the next version was something you all will, those of you who followed it will know as the clipper chip. And there the issue was who would maintain the key if there was a need to in fact access something in the public cryptography thing. And the idea was raised of, well, let's have a private company hold it. Talk to the, the um, depository receipt companies who hold on to stock for holders. They didn't want any part of it. They didn't want a government oversight of what they were doing. And as we explored, we found the reality that if you go to some entity outside the government to hold these materials, they are, without exception, exceedingly reluctant to have government oversight or review of what they're doing. So this goes back to the test, the original concept put forward of having congressional oversight of the activities you were doing as the surrogate for the public that, in fact, what you were doing was entirely legal. Um, congressional relations, obviously, was a critical part of this. Uh, and I was able to build on my experience with the committees during Church and Pike. Uh, I was privileged to have Congressman Eddie Boland as chairman of the House Select Committee throughout the entire period. He was very close to Speaker Tip O'Neill. Uh, on the Senate side, Senator Noy, who had made the ranking member the vice chairman, so I had Inouye and Goldwater for two years, Bai and Goldwater for two years, and then Goldwater and Pat Moynihan for the remaining two. Um, it was a period of staffers who delved deeply into how we were using the authorities, but the committees were satisfied that we were, at every step, abiding by the legal processes we'd put in place. Um, the I can't tell you that it automatically satisfied this issue of, are you spying on us? So everywhere I'd go to make speech around the country, first question was NSA keeping a file on me. And it took a long time to ultimately, the interest sort of dropped off in the absence of additional stories. But what that meant was it was critically important to put in place inside NSA a compliance structure that was the counterpart that the Congressional Committee Oversight could go to. Looking at every uh, warrant that came from the FISA court, but it was particularly focused on minimization. If you accidentally came across a U.S. citizen in the process, what did you have to do with it? Unless it was clear agent of a foreign power, and I had one of those, the president's brother, 
which was another whole turmoil to try to deal with. Um, but the, and, and he was unwitting. The foreign country was trying to make him an agent, but he was too dumb to understand that in the process. Uh, the, the real issues here were ones of, uh, what if you made a mistake? And getting built into the compliance, if you found a mistake, you reported it. Under no circumstances would you try to cover it up or hide it. And that's what ultimately built confidence with the committees when you identified for them where you'd made a mistake on the compliance issue and they accepted that you were really combined by it. Um, now, two great shortfalls in that vision and in putting together the FISA court. The first was I simply didn't have a clue on how fast the digital revolution was going to come. It was nice, comfortable when you got the warrant from the court and FBI went down to the switching center and hooked up the dedicated line to whatever embassy or trade organization you'd been authorized to collect against. And then suddenly came packet switching. And the dedicated lines disappeared. And you suddenly had to deal with the reality that you had to sort through large volumes of information to find what you were authorized to collect, which made the compliance issue far more difficult than it had been before. The other... I did not contemplate in 1978 non-state actors coming to this country on valid tourist visas, traveling, training, moving money, and ultimately hijacking aircraft and flying them into buildings. There was no process in the legislation. It was all aimed at countries and their organizations, not individuals traveling using multiple different cell phones in the process. Um, this came uh, to a direct head right after 9-11, when uh, President Bush asked, are there any others here? And my Caden explained the difficulty. There was nothing in the FISA court that authorized. Vice President pops up. You don't need it. It was never needed the court in the first place. President's always authorized it, bring in the warrants. President Bush will authorize them, and you can go collect. And that is the process that went on. Mike and I talked a good deal during this time frame and about the need to get the legislation changed to accept the differences. So on his own, at substantial risk, he went to see the majority leader of the Senate uh, to talk about it and he was told that there was no way legislation could be enacted in the climate that was there without revealing the uh, nature of what you're trying to do. That prevailed. It goes on for another three years, and then a substantial public outcry when it pops up that we'd gone back to presidential warrants and issue of whether that was even authorizable under the FISA statute. Um, but... What I'm, the point I'm trying to make here, inside NSA, from its director on down, the intent to provide 
with the provisions of the law, and if it wasn't there, get different legislation was very deeply ingrained in the fabric of the agency. Now, let me turn finally to the issue of leaks and what leaks do. The reality is, uh, whether it's companies or individuals or countries, they rarely accept the vulnerability of their communications until they're presented with evidence of the violation. Um, we never had a human source in the Soviet Politburo in the entire existence of the Soviet Union. But we did have a period of time when we had pretty detailed knowledge of what they were discussing, what they were talking, because we were intercepting the dialogue between Politburo members and their limousines going to and from the Politburo meetings. And somebody leaked it to Jack Anderson, and he published that we were listening to the limousines in Moscow. They put encryption on those things, but fortunately, it was a very weak encryption system. Didn't take us long till we were back at work in the process. Vital information, couldn't get any other way. It was leaked to Anderson again. He reported we were again reading it. They went to a high-level system that was never successfully attacked. Um, 1998, uh, Nairobi and Dar es Salaam. Cruise missiles fired into, Kenya, into Sudan and into Afghanistan. Background briefing by the National Security Advisor himself to the media um, about the vice. He was asked, well, how do we know Al-Qaeda's involved? And he said, well, we were listening to their communications. That went out worldwide, unidentified source. And within a week, all Al-Qaeda communications were gone. A very, very long, slow period to go try to find them. Flash forward to 10 December 2001. Palpable excitement in Washington. Bin Laden's been cornered at Tora Bora. We're going to bag him tonight. Journalist asked, how do we know he's there? Unidentified individual said, because we were listening to his communications. That went out worldwide. He never, ever was in communications directly again until about, it was taken down at about Abad. Uh, went to couriers exclusively. Uh, <clears throat> finally, Korea Gate. This had happened the second month I was at NSA. Um, turned out that a member of Congress was regularly keeping the Korean government advised of what was going on inside the investigation. Uh, Park Sun uh, had been providing money and favors to congressmen, particularly when they traveled to Korea. Um, instructed to give that info to the speaker and Congressman Boland, but it was also given to the chair of the Ethics Committee. And within two days, it was in the hands of the media. Wall Street Journal called. Uh, Eddie Lindauer got the story, went to Kenny Bacon. And they called to ask uh, the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Public Affairs, would it be damaging if we report NSA had provided? He was assured it would be. So the journal ran their story but didn't identify how the U.S. government knew what was going on. 
We watched a great scramble to find out where the penetration was. But the New York Times, being uh, very unhappy they'd been scooped, ran front page the next day, NSA provides. And within 36 hours, the entire crypto system had been changed and we lost access. The Attorney General had been closely following the details of the case. So he went to President Carter and said, you've got to do something about that. Uh, the discussion with Harold Brown, Secretary of Defense, was send a delegation uh, to tell the publisher and the editors of the New York Times the damage that they did. Um, Mr. Salzberger took a call from the president, agreed to accept the visit. General Counsel of Defense, Assistant Secretary of Public Affairs, and Vice Admiral Lindman were sent. And I was instructed telling the whole story uh, of exactly what transpired and what the consequences have been. So when I finished, Mr. Salzberger said, well, Admiral, if this is about censorship, we're going to fight every step of the way. And my answer was, if it was about censorship, we wouldn't be there. We'd be trying to do it in Washington. What we wanted them to understand was the damage they did to sources and methods and that the journal didn't do in the process. Fascinating discussion continued for about an hour. And they finally said, well, they would be willing to try a system that if they could call it 7.30 in the evening and say, will it be damaging if we say the following? Not that you don't like it. Would it be damaging to sources and methods? Um, we took that back. The uh, Attorney General urged President Carter to try it. Uh, the big debate was who would do it. Um, and since Inman had already gone through one, Inman was designated to be the recipient. It spread pretty quickly to the Washington Post, the Star, Chicago Tribune, Los Angeles Times. A little slower, uh, Newsweek, Time. U.S. News World Report. That process continued on through the Carter administration. It was a topic of discussion between uh, Dr. Brown and Cap Weinberger. Turnover, Cap wanted to continue it, so I kept it as I moved to CIA until I retired. At that point, Casey wanted to take it over because he wanted to kill it in the process and did. But it was not, it was not always a comfortable situation. There were only a couple of times when I had to persuade them for a dialogue the next day to understand the damage. In almost other cases, you could simply change the wording to remove how the U.S. government knew. Um, in one of the conversations with Howard Simon and um, a wonderful guy, Ben Bradley, at Post, uh, Mr. Bradley said, Admiral, um, we believe in the system. It works. We're informing the public. But most of these are being taken out of Bob Woodward's articles. He loves to demonstrate his access in the process. And one of these days he's going to do a book, and I won't have a chance to review that book. And sure enough, it's called The Veil. And if you were to read it, you'd think that Woodward and I were talking every other day, and he's, in the preface it says, where I was not a direct party to the conversation, I have tried to reconstruct it as I believe it likely occurred. It was a process, though, that worked in limiting 
the damage. But that didn't contemplate a Snowden. The disaffected employee taking large volume. And I would assess for you as you go into all of this, there are three different issues. Uh, the the, uh, the image that has been risen of NSA spying on U.S. citizens. And there is not a single shred of evidence anywhere of violation of the law. There are a lot of questions about the wisdom of the large volume of information collected. For what purpose? And what's the value of it? But there is not. And this image that the public once again has of files being kept on there, and I get this question regularly in speeches. So it is widely held in the public from the media coverage. Um, the impact on allies, and finally, um, the impact on our friends and our fellow collaborators and the damage done to their support, particularly GCHQ and uh, Australia and DSD. Um, what's the purpose of collecting this great array of information? Warning. And the timeliness of access is the critical issue in warning. So are you interested in reporting history after the fact? If you are, then putting it out in the hands of where you've got to go through several different layers to get to it, entirely acceptable. But if you want the prospect of warning before an attack, then the timeliness of being able to access that database is huge. For me, there's a different issue, and that's is there substantive value of what you do? I would encourage uh, the new director to put in place a process where yearly you look at what's been produced, leads to the FBI, product issued, and uh, give it, don't make the judgment yourself, give it to the director of national intelligence to go to the users and say, was this of value? And if you go through two years when it's not, then you should stop it. Not for privacy reasons, but for reasons of simply user resources that are not valuable. Finally, privacy. Um, it will be apparent to you that I have substantial difficulty with the idea that you can't trust your government in the process. Uh, I watched an agency that I have great confidence remains the ability, retains the focus on complying with the law and getting laws enacted to enable what they believe they need to do in the country's interest. Yet, every time I get on the Internet, I recognize the signs that everywhere I go, I'm being tracked, every step. And it's being used to make money because the ads pop up alongside where I am. So as you think about this issue of privacy, I would encourage you to weigh is don't trust the government really the standard that you want to support? Or do you want to have some broad balance on the use of information, whether it's by private entities or government itself? Thank you very much for your kind time. <laughs>